Hello and welcome back to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast. I'm Dane Cash and this is the, the PSBRP for Monday, May 1st. Welcome to May, everybody. We got a great show for you this week. I mean, I'm going to say that no matter what every week, so I guess can you really trust me, but (laughs) we're going to talk about the Tour de Romandie. We're going to talk about the upcoming Vuelta Femenina. The Giro d'Italia is also around the corner. Plenty of racing to be had at the moment. And I am, as ever, just ecstatic to get to have my weekly conversation with cycling analyst extraordinaire, Cosmo Catalano. Cosmo, great to see you. Great to see you too, Dane. Likewise, exciting to be here, um, uh, even even on a quiet week with less to talk about. Yeah, the classics are over and the Grand Tours haven't quite started as of recording time. We'll get there very soon, though. Uh, I'm, I'm also equally ecstatic. I'm, I'm so happy to also have another conversation with Abby Mickey. Abby, the host of the Wheel Talk podcast, a former racer herself, Currently, uh, uh, I guess she's mountain biking, according to her Instagram. Abby, how are you? How was your ride on the mountain bike that I saw on your socials? Hello, it was really good. I haven't ridden my mountain bike since, um, I don't know, uh, four months pregnant. So it's been, no, less than that, two months pregnant. So it's been a really long time. So yeah. it was really fun to get back out there on the mountain. Glad to hear that. Uh, speaking of mountains, that's that's what passes for a segue in this podcast. Uh, we've got a lot of mountains to talk about people racing on because the Tour de Romandie is just full of mountains and people racing on them. Yeah, okay, Cosmo is making a... I'm making, I'm making a gesture. He's gesticulating in a way that says, eh, maybe not. And he's kind of right. It wasn't that mountainous this year, I guess. Well, it's, it's they were surrounded terrain. by... I mean, they're racing through the Alps, yeah. right? But, like, they're not really climbing a lot of mountains. All right, well, let's just cut to the chase. <laughs> it's Sunday when we're recording this, so the Tour de Romandie ended this morning. Uh, Cosmo... What happened at the Tour de Romandie this week? Uh, there was a prologue. There were some sprints. Um, the prologue had an entertaining mechanical that I think there's a great story about on Escape Collective. Um, there was a time trial that um, Mate- Matteo Jorgensen almost won, uh, but didn't win. Juan Ayuso won it. And the next day, uh, he, uh, he won the stage and got into the leader's jersey. Uh, the next day, he fell off. Uh, pace-wise, heading up the really big climb uh, on the one mountain finish. Um, lots of people actually took a chance there. UAE led most of the way. There was an entertaining moment where Jayco chased itself down. Um, but at the end of the day, Adam Yates kind of powered clear to take the stage and get enough time back over Jorgensen to take the lead. Um, and then there was a downhill day, stage five at the end with a interesting sprint. And yeah, I dive in deeper from there. So for the deep diving of this race, I think well, I'll just come out and say off the bat, there, there weren't a whole lot of uh, moments tactically that were giant head scratchers that we can break down for the next 45 minutes. There were, a, there were however, a bunch of storylines, I think, over the course of the race with riders who, in a couple of instances, kind of surprising with their performances or coming back from long stretches of not performing. Uh, so there's there's plenty of little, th- little storylines to talk about along the way. The initial storyline, I think, that really made the race of the first day was the number of riders who either crashed out or banged their knees out of the race or were sick uh, in the case of the twin brother of the eventual race winner. 
so it was a great race for one of the Yates brothers. That would be Adam. But Simon Yates uh, actually pulled out of the race early on. So it actually ended up being a race that quite a few of the big names on the start list did not get very far into the race. Mark Cavendish, another really big one of those racers. This was his final start before an expected trip to the Giro d'Italia, and Cav did not factor. He kind of fell off the pace and pulled out of the race for second day of racing. So not really what that team was hoping for. And, you know, not, yeah, Alexei Luchenko also out of the race. So a continued continued woes for the Astana team that hasn't had a great start to the year. Cosmo, you mentioned Rui Costa's chain ring issue. And yes. as you mentioned, the Escape Collective, specifically Ronan McLaughlin, wrote up a story on that. Yeah, and for and for the explanation, the why, go over to escapecollective.cc and 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 find out. Cosmo, there was a moment, at least one moment, maybe more. I don't, I don't know. You're you're the you're the person who tells us how races were won. Uh, there was a moment where Jaco did something tactically that we can break down, that we can point to as a question mark, a head scratcher. So before we get to some of the storylines, I want to talk about that. What happened? Yeah, uh, this was. This is the Queen stage, a big climb up to, to I think it's Tyon 2020. Uh, no, Tyon 2000, his name is Scaria. Um, UAE is, is pulling uh, from the kind of from the base of the climb. Even though Ayuso falls off, they're still working at the front uh, for, for Yates. Um, but right uh, earlier in the day, up the road, uh, Jayco has gotten two riders into the escape. And as the escape hits the climb, they kind of break down. You know, the, the escapes fall into smaller and smaller groups. And they end up with two Jayco riders in this group of three people up the road. And I can't tell if it just happened that UAE eased off uh, right as they were about to make the catch or if they did it on purpose to see, to, to make Jayco do the work of chasing their own team down. I don't understand what the benefit of that would be, but it is literally uh, a switchback before the catch. UAE kind of slows down off to the side of the road. And Jayco comes forward with three riders leading the chase. And there is a switchback. At the last one before the break is caught, where you have a, a breakaway of three riders with two UAEs at the front of it, and you go around the switchback, and there is a peloton of 20-ish riders with three Jaycos chasing the two Jaycos down. And I totally understand how it would happen. It, I, I see a world where it makes sense. It's not hard to. It's just really weird looking to see, you know, a, <laughs> a third of your team chase down a quarter of your team um, uh, in the queen stage of... Uh, pretty important stage race Uh, one wonders if the team was all in for simon yates who was coming off of some decent performances so far this year he had you know he hadn't uh been up there as far as maybe you would have expected at the Basque country he was ninth overall there but he did finish second overall one stage at down under and yeah i would have expected that the team would have been all in for him in this race where he was a favorite and you know maybe when he left they just completely uh, forgot how to race their bikes well, I, I, you know, I, I can totally see how if you are Eddie Dunbar and you have shown up to this race to be a supporter or, a, you know, the, the that kind of super domestique, that top lieutenant role, and suddenly you are in the leadership role. Uh, so instead of being that last surge, kind of a high, steady pace threshold right before your leader attacks, you now have to be the end of that train. And maybe you haven't got that same explosiveness or haven't been working on it. And so if the pace eases off, do you want to have to chase down attacks or do you want to keep dieseling? And I think there may have just been a decision where it's like, hey, this is, I don't want to go slow fast. Let's just keep chugging along. 
And if we catch our guys, we catch our guys because they're going to get caught anyway, right? They were five, six, seven seconds ahead of the group. And Dunbar rode pretty well, I thought. Uh, he was one of the uh, second second or third to last attack that, that didn't succeed. Yates' attack obviously did. There was a lot of kind of back and forth. And you could also see him in this sort of that very kind of dieselly response where Bardet would go up the road and the group would split up. And you could actually see Dunbar kind of towards the back kind of bringing, bringing himself back into it. Um, so, yeah, tactically, it makes sense. It just looked really silly. Um, but I, I think I think they did the right thing. Yeah, Dunbar, by the way, I think I think this was his best ever GC performance in a World Tour race. He's been around yeah, top 10. The, the the Peloton for a while. He's he's you know, he was a very promising prospect. He won the the U23 uh, Tour of Flanders. I think he was a, you know, guy who finished up high at the Tour de l'Avenir. Uh, and he's finished pretty well in some sort of lower tiers stage races but yeah i think this was his yeah. best ever finish in a world tour race he was ninth overall and yeah to you know come, come into this race being a, uh, expected to be a support rider and, and riding for for simon yates and then to finish in the top 10 is really impressive i don't is that is it as challenging as uh, abby as a former pro is that as challenging as i would think to go to just switch your mindset that quickly yeah, I guess it depends how early in the race the, that switch needs to happen. Because the earlier in the race, the easier I think it is to change your mindset and refocus your energy. Um, obviously, if it's later in the race, you've already lost a bunch of time if you're doing a domestic job properly. So I think he kind of got lucky with that one. But also, we've seen it you know, a lot where domestic riders are up there with their GC riders in the crucial points of the race, and they they happen to land themselves well in the GC. So I think it's an incredible result for him. But for me, I'm like not super surprised that he was able to to make that shift. And also having been on Ineos for so long and making a shift to a new team, I think that he'll be feeling a lot of, um, a lot of inspiration to kind of push himself farther this year, having you know, been working for some of the top GC riders in the world for the last couple of years. So, yeah. But, I mean, an awesome result to see from him. Um, Ronan's going to be just, like, so happy. <laughs> it is funny when you talk about Ineos. I mean, I think they've done a really good job at Ineos over the past five years. We see it over and over and over again. The team has had the second or third option, you know, or the second or third rider for a GC bid end up as a, as a leader. And it's been... It's been pretty clear that if you go to that team, even as a second or third rider, you might end up getting your own chances. The tricky thing is, if you're Eddie Dunbar, you're more like the fifth or sixth rider. So at at Jayco, I think he he does have way more of a likelihood of finding himself in these situations uh, where where he might end up being able to be a, a leader. Uh, before we go any further, I did want to give some props to the race winner and his team. Uh, it's funny, I. I I don't know how much there really is to say even about Adam Yates here. I mean, looking at the start list, you'd certainly expect him to do well, and he did. So nothing at, I don't know, nothing all that surprising there. But, uh, but then again, he didn't take any World Tour wins in 2022. Uh, so, you know, after two years at Ineos, he left for UAE, where he has now won a stage at the UAE Tour, and a stage in the overall at Romandy. Just another example, if you really needed one, of uh, how that team has done a nice job of building depth. It's not just Tadej Pogacar over there. Uh, sure, uh, Tadej Pogacar is their superstar. Uh, he wins all the time, but Yates is new to the team this year, and uh, immediately he's paying dividends, uh, winning big one-week races. And if that wasn't enough, you have Juan Ayuso, 
who, coming back from health issues that kind of kept him off the bike all season long, went out and won the time trial, wore the leader's jersey uh, until Yates moved into it, uh, and, and then held on to take the win. So as much as Pogacar is the one grabbing all of the headlines, and deservedly so, uh, for the first few months of the year, Ayuso and Yates win back-to-back uh, stages in Romedy, and Yates takes the overall title. And Rafael Micah, for good measure, lands in the top 10. So considering the fact that Pogacar is currently recovering from injury, you have to think that the team management is pretty pleased that this squad can still manage such an awesome week in Switzerland with the rest of the roster stepping up. So, yeah, Chapo de Yates and Ayuso and Micah and you know, all of all of UAE team members, this was a, a pretty impressive team-wide performance. And, yeah, again, with riders who are not named Tadej Pogacar. So it, it, I think that speaks to the depth of the team. Uh, another rider who just continues to impress, and I... I I'm hesitant to no, I'll keep say hyping him. I am so yeah. Yeah, I'm just like absolutely thrilled with Matteo Jorgensen. I mean, all right, great. Finishing second overall for a guy who has very limited experience in the World Tour. I mean, he he signed for he was on AG2R for a little bit just as a trainee, and obviously then went to Movistar during 2022, and there wasn't a ton of racing then. And, has been on the team for a couple years and he's not he's had a couple interesting results but this is just this year has just been amazing for him and i feel like he just continues to be more and more impressive and for for him to get you know like finishing fourth at E3 and ninth at Flanders was was really cool to see but second overall at Tour de Romandie especially with Caterium de Delphine and Tour de France on his um, calendar for the next races coming up is just like really, really exciting. I think it's interesting for an American being on Movistar. I like, I wouldn't really picture an American being on Movistar in the first place, let alone like an American being on Movistar and leading their team at Tour de Romandy, which is not a small race. I mean, it's an awkward race in the calendar, but it's still, there's still really great riders on this, on this start list. So it's, it's cool. It's really cool. I, I'm, I'm impressed with Matteo Jorgensen, and I'm really excited to see what he can do without putting any pressure on him because, um, as we've seen in the past, any American who you're like, oh my God. He's the next Lance, Abby. He's the next Lance. (laughs) It never ends well for them, so let's not do that. He's the next TJ Vanguard. He's the next next Greg Lamond. There we go. Next Greg Lamond. That's what he is. It's it's (laughs) nice. It's good. Yeah, I I completely agree, and it's. I think of Movistar, this was before Movistar was the great classics team we saw this spring. I think of Movistar as a real, like, mountain goaty, climby team. And it wasn't like Jorgensen was unsupported out there. He definitely had, he had some help. He wasn't totally alone. But he did most of the real work of that race, of that mountain stage, himself. Like, once things got down where top names are attacking, where Dunbar's going, where Bardet is going, where Pinot is going, he's by himself, and he is super calm, cool as a cucumber. You know, he is, I, you could see him kind of in the background, pulling things back, kind of watching, making the choice of when he's going to start riding harder. I, I'm sure he would have loved to beat Yates, uh, uh, but Adam Yates looked super strong, super confident. I think Jorgensen knew that second was an amazing result for the stage and for the overall, and that he should do everything in his power to make sure he got that. And he did, and he did it really well. He did it by himself and seemed pretty cool about it. Like, 
I, I thought it was really watching the time trial where he was just kind of he's in the hot seat, you know, getting clipped by Ayuso. And he, most people kind of act like, oh, you know, I've been here, uh, you know, I want to win, but they don't like respond. And like he sees his time go by and he's just like, oh, man, like it was just very it was very fun. It was relatable. He seems like he's not putting himself under too much pressure, even though he's performing at this super high level. I also would like to point out that he is like not a small dude. He's like six foot two. Um, so to come in second on the general classification in front of some very petite climbers is pretty bonkers. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you just look at his results this year, it's, it's really impressive. The breadth, the type of races, I guess that, that he has been thriving in. And I, I think you won't often see a rider finish fourth at E3 and second overall at Romandy. That's really hard to do. Uh, and and that's what Jorgensen has done. He's I think that the time trial, the, the fact that this race was was heavily influenced by the time trial because there weren't that many huge climbs was really in his favor because he did finish second in that time trial. And uh, by the way, Movistar landed I think three riders in the top five of that TT. So nice job for Movistar there. Yeah, but yeah, TT the, the, specialists, the, classic specialists. Yeah, right. That's right. I mean, this this team is suddenly <laughs> they they're really <laughs> they got these big riders who do time trials and also classics and also finish second at the Twitter Romandy. So what, what, once they got rid of the deadweight gravel, that's right. right. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. I mean, it's not like they got rid of him. He's just, he's doing other things now. You know, I, uh, I also, I, I kind of am curious, like what Matteo Jorgensen's going to do going forward as far as like, if he's going to keep the ball rolling with how he's multi talented at the moment or if he's gonna kind of narrow it down and focus because like I mean last year he finished 20th overall at the Tour de France which is actually not bad he was right behind Brandon McNulty um but like I it, I feel like his strengths lie more in one week races and I'm curious if he will kind of develop into somebody who's good at the one day races like E3 like Flanders that he did well in this year and then kind of turn himself into a one week racer. I, I don't know if, yeah, I don't know. I think he's, he's still so kind of new, like 23 years old, still fresh in a way that I don't know how he's going to do if he is put in a general classification role for a race like the tour. I mean, I don't want to keep too much pressure on it, but you know, Tadej Pogacar does well in all of those things. Just saying. That's, so, he's like, you know. a, he's just a freak. <laughs> like, for, for real though, like you'd think because of the success Pogacar is currently having doing different things that riders will get more leeway to do different things. There have always been one week guys and, and Grand Tour guys who could perform at a, a race like Liège. Um, very true. They just, a I think a lot of the point. time we're, we're kind of like steered away from that. Like everything's got to be about the tour. So yeah, we, We've pointed this out on escape podcasts in the past where I think the concern is that if Bogatra gets beaten by Vingago again at the tour, then teams will say, oh, well, maybe racing with such focus on the classics isn't the right plan. And then we'll go back to the boring old days of, you know, tour riders never racing Flanders. But anyway, we should we shouldn't focus too much on the Americans as much as we're excited about Matteo Jorgensen. He got second at the Tour of Romandy. I yeah, feel like I this agree. is a pass. We, we, like... I, I talked about Yates looking good. Uh, Thibaut Pino looked strong but unfocused, as per usual. <laughs> you would think that in his, that, but... you know, swan song season, he would be able to, 
I don't know. I, I say that, but then like maybe he's got senioritis. Maybe it's like I don't know. Right. Just Van Bluten's in her swan song season, and she does not look good. So. <laughs> okay, but un well, shots fired first of all. But second of all, unlike Thibaut Pinot, Annemiek van Vleuten has won everything ever. Thibaut Pinot has not. <laughs> I feel like Annemiek van Vleuten has an excuse to have senioritis. Well, it's true she does. Pinot Pinot looked really good, but he's just. I feel like I feel almost like he rides a lot like. Like um like Kashi and Iwadoma like he's just like I'm gonna go it feels like the uh, the feel in the feels and it's like you you watch him just he's almost he's like an accordion almost like he'll you can see him kind of fade and then he'll surge and then he'll fade and then he'll surge and it's like it, does he is he not have a power meter does he not have a coach like is it really his his the way he rides like every single fluctuation in in road pitch makes him seem like he's about to close or about to collapse I just I, this is all visual. I have no input or no no insight beyond that. But it just you watch a guy like Yates who really seemed to be like you know get the gap, kind of check back. Okay, I can ride this hard and hold that gap and still win the race. You got a guy like Jorgensen who's who's kind of again the, almost the same logic from the other side of it. Like seconds really good. Let's keep the pace high. Let's not lose it, but let's not blow up. And then you, in between you have Pinot just doing the Pinot thing. I mean everything that you just said said makes him the perfect standard bearer for French cycling. Uh... And not just because you called him an accordion, which is the perfect instrument for the standard bearer of French cycling. But but that's why we should we should shift our focus about our favorite French rider to David Gaudu. Because you think he's more likely to win? Is that what you're is that what you're saying? I just think he's got great glasses. <laughs> that's uh yeah. We've this is the second time we've talked about great glasses, I think, on the podcast, right? It was one other rider. Oh. I think we've talked about someone's glasses. Like, Close enough. Law has before. good glasses as well, but yeah, I believe I that's. I believe that is the conversation. Yeah, so yeah. Bard Bardet was in the race too, and actually seemed like he did some good decoy work for for Max Pool. I, I think everybody was kind of watching Bardet to be the man, and I think I was watching the race and like, why is he attacking this early? Oh wait, it's Bardet. Remember the murder of Hui, and then it was like, actually, maybe he set this up to kind of take some pressure off and to, to make other people work while 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 Paul kind of hung in and and came in with the with the leaders. Yeah, Paul is just 20 years old. So, a fourth place finish at Romedia is really really impressive, I mean for anybody, but for a 20-year-old rider is just excellent. Uh and a, a success for a British rider in a week of successes for British riders because stage one of the race was won by Ethan Vernon and stage two was won by Ethan Hader. So Max Poole finishing fourth overall, yet another really, really strong ride. And then, of course, as we already mentioned, Adam Yates won the race. Really, really great race for British riders. Uh, just a great week for British riders all around. Uh, just a little further down the GC and another really good performance by a 20-year-old rider, recently turned 20, Cian uh, Wittebrooks, who I think that's how you say his name, the Tour de l'Avenir winner from 2022 who has been a much hyped prospect, Borahan Skrow sort of won the sweepstakes to sign him. He had a lot of interest from other teams, and he has not finished in the top ten overall in Oman, uh, in Catalonia, and now sixth at the Tour de Romandie. So another top ten for Wita Brooks at the Tour de Romandie. And then, the, uh, to me, the most exciting, the most um, important, relevant top ten of the whole race uh, is is actually. The rider who finished eighth overall, Egan Bernal. This would be his first GC top 10 finish since 2021. 
And obviously his first since his massive crash in which he broke dozens of bones, a lot of bones. Uh, Everything. He he had a horrible, horrible crash in 2022. I think if you're listening to this podcast, you're well aware of that. He did return to racing in 2023. And that was great that he was able to do that after the initial reports of, you know, who knows if he's ever going to be a pro again. He returned in 2022, and in 2023, he actually got the year off to a really good start. He was looking good at the Vuelta San Juan for the first five stages, and then he pulled out of the race because he crashed and banged his knee, and that that knee continued to flare up and bother him over the first couple of months of the season. But finally, he comes away with the top 10 in a World Tour race at the Tour de Romandie, and I, I'm just really, really, really happy to see that. I think Bernal was a... Uh, an awesome Tour de France champion and a rider who he's still only 26 years old. So still younger than a lot of first time tour winners. I'm really hoping he can get back to his best, you know, for Colombian cycling has really gone from having a bunch of great top tier riders to not having as many GC stars of the moment. So I'm hoping that Bernal, you know, just for the sake of all those fans who have come to the sport, get to have that, uh, that chance to see another contender out there again. And an eighth at Tour de Romandy. Yeah, as, Abby, as you said, it's a pretty big race. It's not a huge race. It's not a grand tour. But if you look at the start list, there's plenty of, of stars at this race. And for, for Bernal to finish in the top 10 here is really, really promising. If you look at his Strava, he is constantly putting up these massive rides in the mountains. Uh, so it's nice to see him convert that into actual success in a bike race. Uh, he is, I think, planning to take... A little bit of time off, but I, but I believe he's got a few other races on the on the calendar in the near future. So hopefully we'll continue to see more success from him as he keeps working his way back. And I'm sure Ineos is also really happy to see that because their stage racing uh, has not been up to snuff. They have really fallen off the proverbial cliff when it comes to stage racing. Maybe we'll see different when we get to the Giro and Teo Gegenhart. Uh, Mixes things up there. But yeah, Bernal in general, I, I, I think you got to be happy to see him back here at this level. One other Colombian, also back at a high level, also had some frustrating health issues. For Fernando Gaviria, it was COVID over and over and over again. Uh, Gaviria uh, was one of the riders who was affected by COVID at the UAE Tour back in 2020, which was when the cycling world really got its its introduction to COVID. And unfortunately for Gaviria, he kept getting it. Uh, And he, for whatever reason, just was also unable to, even when he was healthy, put up any big results for the past few years. And he has switched teams. He's finally moved on from UAE. He's gone over to Movistar, where he has now won a World Tour race with Movistar. First World Tour win in quite a while for him. A rider who... When he first was coming up, I thought was going to be the next best sprinter in the world. I mean, he really is that talented. He had that much talent, at least, or seemed to have that much talent at the beginning, uh, but had not won a World Tour race since the Tour of Poland in 2021 he won a stage at. He's had some lower-tier wins, but for Gaviria to come back, I think, is a really big deal uh, for him and for Movistar. So, Fernando Gaviria won the last stage of the Tour de Romandie, and... Yeah, I think that's that's pretty much all the major points we've covered, all the interesting storylines from that race. We've got lots of other races to talk about, though, both races that are finished and that are coming up. Let's first jump over to the Festival Elsie Jacobs, where Abby 
you are are you glad to be able to tell us about Allie Wollaston? Yeah, so I wanted to talk about this race. It's it's a two point pro, so it's not like a huge race, but it always has a really impressive turnout. It's been won by a lot of the top riders in the sport, like Voss, Vanderbregen, Cassie has won it. Um, Christine Mayerus has won it. Emma Norsgaard. So it's it's a super high profile race for only being a two point pro, and there's very few races on the women's calendar that are like an in between between being a world to a race and being a lower level race. And this is a really good race that a lot of the professional team, a lot of the world tour teams go to, but there's also national teams that get involved. So it's one that I always look forward to. And they also have really incredible live coverage and, and the courses are really interesting. They're quite hilly. Um, in the past, there's been three stages. This year, there was only the two. There's only two stages. Um, the first stage was won by Marta Bastianelli in kind of a a selection of riders over the final climb. Um, Ali Wollaston finished second behind Bastianelli. Same time though, it was a group of really top riders. Like Anouska Koster was there, the um, former Dutch national champion who rides for Uno X. Um, also Heidi Franz was in there for the U S and Heidi was one of the riders that really got thrown around with the B and B Zach situation. So it was awesome to see her up there. And then when it got to stage two, it was another selection that won the day. Actually, like it would be impossible for me to tell you exactly what happened because it was such an exciting race. It was circuits of a pretty technical little climb. So I, I highly recommend that if you want to watch a really exciting finale that you go watch that. But there was a selection that included Marta Bastianelli, Ali Wollaston did a ton of work and she ended up winning the stage um, with Anoska Koster and Heidi Franz coming in third and fourth with Bastianelli second. And Ali Wollaston took the overall. And the reason that I wanted to talk about Ali is because she's a super interesting rider. Um, she's only 22. She's been on the next gen team for two years. And then obviously that turned into AG insurance pseudo quick step this year, the world tour team. And she's won, she won the national championships of New Zealand this year, the TT and the road race. But she didn't have a great Santos tour on her, but she was sixth on the first stage. So she's kind of up there a little bit. And this is a huge result for her in Europe, but also for the AG insurance team, which is pretty much a brand new team on the scene this year. They've they've obviously been a development team, but they turned into a world tour team this year. And that has a lot more pressure than being a U23 development team. And they've won six races this year. Four of them were Ali Wilson, taking the general classification overall at Elsie Jacobs, the last stage, and then both the national championships. So awesome to see for her, an up and coming young rider who is pretty exciting kind of going into the rest of the season and also the rest of her career. I think she's a name that people should remember. So that that's why I put this on the list. Yeah, she is 22 years old. Like yet another very and only turned 22 in January, so yet another really talented youngster and as you kind of pointed out, I'm sure AG Insurance is happy to have a race winner on the squad this early in their existence. Also, you mentioned Heidi Franz. She was fourth, I think, which is really impressive to go from the frustrating, I'm sure, stressful experience of leaving 
the Zaf team to finishing so highly in a race that, yeah, you point out has a really good start list. I think if you have a fun race and it's in Luxembourg and therefore close to most of the big stars, you're going to, you're going to draw some big names. Yeah. Heidi did amazing. And, and especially on the final stage, on the second stage, she was really up there doing a ton of work and her sprint in the final was, was really good. And I think it's awesome to see her coming out of that Zap team. Um, she's one of the riders that didn't land on a European team. She signed for DNA, the U S team, which means she has a contract, but it is not in Europe. And I think uh, having been her teammate in the past, like I'm a little bit biased, but I do think she deserves to be racing over here. She's incredibly talented. So it was cool to see her racing with the U.S. team and, and getting up there in both stages and in the general classification. Since we're talking about the Zaf team, I feel like it's worth mentioning that there's a really interesting situation going on with them at the moment uh, with the Spanish Federation blocking riders from being able to race the Vuelta Femenina that starts on Monday. Michaela Drummond, who um, is a, another really talented young Kiwi, she signed for a Spanish team for the rest of the season, and the Federation is blocking her from being able to race the Vuelta, which I'm sure that they they might talk about this more in the, the placeholders pod, but since we're currently talking about Zaf, um, I think it's, and we're about to talk about the Vuelta, um, I feel like it's worth a mention because it's a really bizarre situation that, at, like, frankly, just absolutely sucks. Any reason the Spanish Federation is doing this other than to be awful, like, I, I don't see the upside for them. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's so weird, and no one's really dug into it yet. Like, Michaela only posted on Twitter seven hours ago as we're recording this, so Sunday, midday on Sunday, um, that she wasn't going to be, be able to race, and she's already raced... Uh, other Sorry, other riders on the team have already raced with their new teams. Like, Lucy Stenard has already been in races with Israel Premier Tech um, and and she yeah she's already like done races with the new team so it's it really doesn't make any sense um, and she's allowed to race on the 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 Vuelta she's on the start list but because Michaela signed for a Spanish team the Spanish Federation is blocking her from racing their Spanish race so it's this really bizarre situation that's frankly just unacceptable from the UCI. Um, I think that they should probably step in at this point. I, I'm assuming, I mean, this is this is such a bad look. It, it, it needs to be addressed. And I'm assuming even that by the time this podcast goes up, there might even be more info than what we have now. Because I, I, I would imagine with the Vuelta starting tomorrow, as of when we're recording, and today as of when you are listening, uh, I'm assuming that the UCI Okay, I guess I shouldn't assume anything from the UCI. I'm hoping that the UCI will step in, <laughs> and it certainly seems likely that somebody will at least make a public statement. You know, they'll, they'll at least address this, and we'll have more answers even by the time you're listening to this. Uh, let's talk about the Vuelta because it's it is upon us. It is here, and Abby, you wrote the race preview at EscapeCollective.cc. You also just had an episode of the Wheel Talk podcast in which you and the Wheel Talk crew chatted with Amanda Spratt to preview the race. So if you're listening and you want a full preview, go listen to the Wheel Talk podcast. And go, go do it quickly, because by the time this comes out, you will we'll have missed the first stage. But 
there, there will still be most of the race, so the preview will still definitely be relevant. So go listen to that. But also, Abby, maybe can you give us some of the the key points here? Let's talk about the route first. What are the what are the big things to know about the route? The you know the the most important stages and and just in general, like what kind of route is this? What kind of rider says a favor? Overall, the course really favors a strong climber. Um, all of the general classification stages are really back ended into the race. So. Stage five is a mountaintop, but it's not super long. Six kilometers, I think seven kilometers with some 13% pitches with another category one climb thrown into the middle of it. So it's it's a really hard day, stage five. And then stage six is a lumpier stage, but is still pretty challenging. And stage seven is an absolutely ridiculous day. It's like 1,750 meters of elevation gain, I'm pretty sure, over two 12-plus kilometer long climbs in the final climb, Lagos de Cabadonga, which is a massive, a, a really famous climb in the men's. Vuelta, they, ha, that has pitches over 20%. So the final stage, it, it's cliche, but the GC will be decided on the final stage. Um, it's an absolutely brutal day. But it starts off really hard with a 14.5 kilometer long TTT, which sounds not super hard, but with with such a short course concentrated and the TTT is a very, very challenging event. And they the men and women really only do it like once a year, twice a year. So it's super important that people are on for the first stage. And it it's it kind of like, yeah, kicks off right from there. You can't as I wrote in my preview, the uh, the age-old, you can't win the race, but you can lose it on the first stage. It applies to the TTT. And then there's two sprinter-friendly stages on stages two and three. Two has a little bit of climbing in it, but there's definitely an opportunity for sprinters on those two stages. Four looks like an awesome day for Mariana Voss. There's some really great climbs in there that are not too long, and then a sweet little descent to the finish. And then, yeah, the, the back back end of the race is really hard. So it suits Annemiek Van Vluten, this race. And uh, I'm, I'll just transition myself into the favorites because there are two riders that kind of sit above everybody else when looking at favorites for this race. And that's Annemiek Van Vluten, the defending champion of the Saratizit Challenge by La Vuelta, which is what this race used to be when it was at the end of the calendar. They've moved it on the calendar this year to the first World Tour stage race of the year and added two days. Um, but she won it last year in spectacular fashion, and her main rival will be Demi Vollering, the uh, protege of Annemiek, of <laughs> the protege of Anna, Anna van der Bregen, who is now coached by Anna van der Bregen, directed by Anna van der Bregen on SC Work. So She's it's gonna coached? Be, uh, yeah, wow. it's a new development. I mean, it's a yeah. new development to the world. Yeah. I don't know how long it's been going on, but we only found out at Liege Basel Liege. Yeah. Um, but it's super, yeah, really exciting, those two. And there's also, as we talked about in the preview episode, there's also some very odd inter-team rivalry at Movistar with Leanna Lippert, the German rider, who's riding incredibly well this year. And as I said a little while ago, Van Vluten doesn't look at her best. So there's like, this is one of the most exciting general classification showdowns i think that we're gonna see because there's so much unknown like demi volering's riding super well she just won all three ardennes 
and Van Vluten is writing not super well. Um, she always, to be fair, like even when she wins races, she looks terrible on a bike. And I think <laughs> fans of her will agree with me. I'm not not a fan. Um, no, no, I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you. She, yeah, she's just all over the place all the time. Um, and and so at the moment though, she's not. She didn't have the spring that she would have hoped. And even when we saw her race. Uh, Valenciana earlier in the year, she couldn't drop people on climbs like she usually does. So it's this really interesting dynamic going into this race. But also, it's on a meek, and the fact that all of the climbs are back-ended so she can build up to that um, means that she will probably come good on Stage 7 and win this. But it's going to be a very exciting race, I think. Lots to look forward to. Movistar intra-team rivalry in Spain is is always good, no matter what the race is. So that, that should be exciting. Uh, also, as I said, go listen to Abby's preview. Go read her race preview. It has everything you need to know over at Escape Collective. And self-plug, I also wrote a little preview with things that you don't need to know. So you can learn about, you know, castles and such. So really, there's all kinds of content out there ahead of La Vuelta Femenina, which is in its first year of existing in this form, first year in this iteration. I mean, it's, it's been around as a different race for a while, but it's a yeah, exciting new development that it is now, yeah, where it is in the calendar and, and as long as it is. And yeah, the, the start list is just awesome. It really does have a lot of the top riders trying to trying to contest this win. Lots to look forward to at the Vuelta Femenina this week. I'm also going to say really quickly before we close things out, there is one other World Tour race on the men's side that's going to happen in between the time we record this and the time you're listening, there is a very rare Monday World Tour race, the Eschborn-Frankfurt one-day race in Germany. So, yeah, by the time you're listening to this, you'll know more than we do about who has won the Eschborn-Frankfurt, but the likes of Alexander Kristoff and Pascal Ackermann and Sam Bennett and quite a few other fast finishers will be there as well for this. Yeah, I don't want to say it's a huge race because it's not, but it's a World Tour race. And as such, there are a lot of big riders there, as there always are for World Tour races. Did this, did this used to be like Rum Henegerton or something? Yes, it used to be Rund Undem Henegerturm, which apparently means race around the Henniger Brewery. Um, Was that a really long yes, time ago? okay. Because I, I feel like it's... Uh, it would Frank. have been in like the early aughts, oh, mid-aughts, yeah, okay. somewhere in there. So, lots of racing to talk about, and lots to continue to talk about next time we come back for a podcast, which will be in a week. But in the meantime, you will hear from the placeholders. You'll hear from Geek Warning. You would hear from Wheel Talk in the middle of the week, except go listen to it now, because it's already going to be out by the time you listen to this, because Abby did a little preview this week, as we've been talking about over and over again. Lots to listen to from us in the cycling analyzing department. We'll be back in a week. Great talking to you. Hope you enjoy all the racing going on around the world. See you next week.